Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It was just a shame because... I had it in my head. This is beaver butt juice flavoring. <laughs> and you had an issue with that? At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, a podcast from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feldman. I'm Corinne Iozio. I'm Claire Maldarelli. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering a tease of some kind of story we found while reading, writing, reporting, editing, being fascinating people who work for Popular Science Magazine, and we decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Corinne, since you're our guest, why don't you start with your tease? Oh, such a wonderful hostess. <laughs> I want to talk about what may be the sweetest smelling butt in all the land. Wow. Oh. <laughs> wow, what a superlative. Claire? There was a lawsuit in 1916 called... The United States versus 40 barrels and 20 kegs of Coca-Cola. <laughs> I feel like this is just going to make me want a soda really badly. All right. So mine is about flaming birds. Oh. Birds of flame. Birds of flame. Birds of flame. That's it. Um, is Rachel confusing Monty Python for like, actual facts? <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> I want to hear about sweet smelling butts. <laughs> I know my audience. If I what had can I say? <laughs> okay. So I'm going to start by reading the two of you a description of a bourbon from a distillery in New Hampshire called the Tamworth Distillery. It's called Eau de Musk. It was a limited edition released in 2018. And this is the tasting note. Dry, smoky spice with fleeting hints of fresh cracked bows and mint that open up to reveal rustic sweet sensations of wet hay 
vanilla, wood sugar, and saddle leather, interspersed by waves of red fruit. I can never taste all that. I can never taste all that either. I can and never you taste and I like actually any of it. tasted this whiskey. <gasps> right. I remember that. And it was good, but I tasted none of that. <laughs> I tasted none of the special things that I'm sure whiskey super tasters I can whiskey. taste. It was nice. Generally speaking, like none of this sounds particularly unique, right? Mm-hmm. These are all flavors that, that we hear associated with, you know, a fine bourbon, a nice sipping whiskey. Mm-hmm. The way that bourbon whiskey specifically is made and stored requires that it be stored in brand new charred wood barrels. And the char on the wood actually naturally creates a vanilla-y, spicy kind of note. The reason that Rachel and I tasted this whiskey, though, is because that's not the only place that the Eau de Musk (laughs) gets its vanilla-iness from. It gets it primarily from a substance called castorium, which is a secretion from a gland on a beaver's butt. Oh, boy. Beaver butts. So it's a creamy brownish, orangish substance. Oh, God, that makes it so much worse. I assumed it was, like, clear and oily-ish. No. You buy the whole gland. You buy it dried. And the perineum, right, is, you know, south of the genitals, north of the Mm-hmm. Right. So that's where these glands are on, on beavers and beaver trappers. They have special instructions on how to remove them. And yeah, in this instance, the castorium was used to flavor the whiskey. Now, I didn't end up reading about this whiskey and then find out about castorium. Castorium has been on my mind for a very long time because every now and again, some celebrity chef or some food blogger will set the Internet on fire. By saying, oh, you know the flavor in your vanilla ice cream? That's actually beaver butt. Right, yeah. It permeated the culture. It got to me. It got to the (laughs) point where I was checking the ingredients on things. But the trick is, is that the word castorium isn't listed in ingredients for vanilla flavored stuff. Is it a natural flavoring? It is listed as natural vanilla flavor Mm. because it is a naturally derived flavor. So you can get real vanilla, right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, you get from a vanilla bean and... Madagascar primarily, you can get a synthetic vanilla or you can get a natural vanilla. Hmm. But the trick of it is, is that like these food bloggers and all the internet fury gets you convinced that all the natural vanilla that isn't real vanilla is, you know, is beaver butt, is, is butt and stuff. And is it? Is it all butt stuff? It's not all butt stuff. There's a couple problems with this. First of all, as we established, not the butt. Second of all, not actually juice. The thing that that trappers sell to people that is used as flavoring is is kind of a, a dried, oily, clay-like, clotty thing. Okay, so not juice. Still worse than juice. Worse than juice, but you know, okay, not juice. Got it. I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering how much one of these go for. Like how much a gland? Yeah. <laughs> I can I know the price for a gram. You can get 2 grams on Etsy for $15. $15. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how many grams are in a gland. So Not like that yeah. many. Mm. Imagine. I don't know. I don't know. There, 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 there are a couple inches near a beaver butt. Yeah. Okay. They're okay. like I mean they they really they look like testes, mm. which we'll talk about more later. <laughs> Because there was a lot of misunderstandings throughout history about what exactly these things were on the beaver and what they were for. So the other thing that's wrong with all of this internet fury is that people aren't really doing this a lot anymore. Mm. Like Tamworth is sort of at the forefront of a little bit of a resurgence, like a a snout to tail kind of (laughs) if we're going to kill a beaver, we're going to use the whole beaver. And, you know, maybe this part is especially delicious. 
but it's not really a food additive that people use a lot mm-hmm. anymore. That's a shame. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's delicious. I completely support this now to tail movement. If you're going to kill it, like, you know, beavers use have. Use the whole thing. Use the whole damn thing. I talked to the trapper that Tamworth Distillery worked with to get their castorium, and he's like, and he told me that beaver is actually quite delicious. It's sort of like a giant steak tip. It doesn't taste gamey like yeah. venison or moose. But all of this begs the question, like, how did we even start doing this to begin with? Like, when did people... Yeah, who realized, like, oh, this gland is, <laughs> tastes good and smells good. Let me use it in multiple flavorings. Well, yeah, so, somebody had to be, like, going in blind eating beaver butt. So the unfortunate thing is I couldn't actually figure out when somebody figured out that beaver butts smell great. Mm-hmm. You know, and what the gland is actually for, right? It's for marking territory, which is what most animals oh, do. Right. It also, because it's a little bit oily, helps the beaver with its waterproofingness, because mm-hmm. obviously they live in streams and lakes and things like that. It doesn't actually have any of the vanillin, which is the vanilla flavoring that people make synthetically. It doesn't have any of that in it. The best that ecologists have gotten to so far is mm. that it's from their diet. They're eating like birch bark and things like that, oh. which has that lovely smell. We don't know who first lifted up a beaver's tail and said, mmm. Because they wouldn't admit it. (laughs) Well, people have been using castorium for all kinds of stuff for thousands of years. Mm. So before we had it in food, which we did a little bit at the turn of the 20th century, and in perfume, which we'll talk about later, people used it for medicinal purposes. Oh, Um, boy. (laughs) All the way back to Greeks and Romans, Roman women would burn castorium candles because they thought it would induce abortions. Mm. didn't there was a monk who would take powdered dry castorium and mull it in wine to cure headaches Mm. which kind of makes a little bit of sense because there is a compound in there that is the same compound that's the active ingredient in aspirin and people were really really into the medicinal properties to the point where in the old world you know in france and germany and then eventually in the new world and up through scandinavia people were hunting beaver not just for the pelts they wanted the castorium they wanted it for its medicinal properties there was all of this lore like it's even written into an aesop fable wow there's a story of a beaver that was running from hunting dogs and the beaver being wise bites off its own testes and then throws them back at the dog because it knows the testicles yes Yes. But the notion of the fable is that the beaver is very wise because it knows that if it sacrifices this one thing, it can spare its life. Would Mm. that we were all so smart. (laughs) Wow. Wow. You know, there were times when people were using it as a food additive. There are old recipes that I found about it being baked into samosas, which kind of sounds super yummy, Mm. like a little little vanilla beaver butt donut. (laughs) (laughs) But people didn't really start using it as a food additive until the turn of the 20th century when flavor science really became a big deal. And they started diving into all of the things that perfumers were using to create their scents. And perfumers were particularly attracted to it because... If it's oily nature, it actually serves as what's called a fixer in a perfume, which is something that helps all of the other smells stay around longer, in addition to having its own, you know, lovely, sweet odiferousness. (laughs) In the mid-20th century, it was in beverages and baked goods and chewing gum, and people started also putting it into tobacco for Mm -hmm. flavor, which Mm -hmm. is something that they actually borrowed from the Native Americans who used to roll muskrat and beaver gland dried bits into their tobacco. It was a thing called kinnikinnik. I feel like this is going to turn into like a new superfood if it gets out <laughs> to like the internet world. I mean, like I said, it's staging a bit of a comeback. It fell out of favor. 
the last good numbers that we have are from the 80s. We're talking like 300 pounds of castorium a year and compare that to like over 2 million pounds of natural vanillin, which you get from fermenting corn and other things like that to get that sweet smell. It also means that we've got a lot of beavers. Wow. And beavers mm. make all kinds of problems. So trappers, like the guy who works for, for Tamworth, are super duper busy. But what they've actually been finding is that the price of the castorium has been starting to go up a lot. Oh. And so naturally I was like, well, what the heck is going on? <laughs> What's going on there? I don't understand. It's not just all of these small craft brewers and distillers like brewing it into their libations, right? It's got to be something else. We're looking at, I think it was two years ago, one pound of castorium was $55. Now it's 73 to $75. And a beaver pelt, the price is dropping. Like people want the butt. <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's snatching up all these beaver butts? So the best I can figure, I can't find really good numbers, but my thought is that it has to be tobacco or something very close to to the vaping culture as much as we loathe it. <sighs> yeah. I did find some e-juices from years past. Some of them discontinued, some of them still active. One of them was called Beaver Butt Boogie. Wow. Mm-hmm. So... That could also be what's going on here. But I don't know. I think I'm with Claire. I want it to stage a comeback anyway. And I also kind of want to taste beaver just generally. (laughs) Because the idea of a 40-pound steak tip is extremely appealing. Mm. I just want to go to, like, a smoothie shop and have, like, them display, like, this contains beaver butt juice as, like, a... (laughs) As a signal of pride. Yeah. And it's like, oh, $5 more for a squirt of juice oh like in the pump at starbucks (laughs) (laughs) yeah i definitely every time i've heard about the beaver butt juice i definitely thought it was like milked from the gland of a living there is a woman at southern illinois state university who has actually successfully milked a beaver but you have to knock it out it's really really terrible it's like if you ever have to take a a cat to get its teeth cleaned it just has to be fully anesthetized right so yeah nobody's nobody's squeezing a lot of beaver butt Not not milk in the beaver butt. It sounds horribly unpleasant. <laughs> Apparently, when they make the secretion in the wild, it's loud too. I tried to find some audio, but I <laughs> like a shark. Yes. <laughs> sounds painful. It is a hundred percent the beaver just, a just vanilla shark. Yes, vanilla raspberry. Thank oh, you. Wow. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I, I don't on that note. Don't think that, we can top I, that. We cannot the break. Top a sweet smelling shark. <laughs> uh, we'll be right back. All right, we're back, and I'm going to talk about another oily animal, some very oily birds, some very oily birds that are on fire, or were, up until the end of the 1800s. Until the end of the 1800s, sailors in Scotland's Orkney and Shetland Islands often lit their way through dark nights by shoving wicks into dead birds, just like a bird would hold up a bird, and it would have a wick in it. Like a torch? Yeah, or a candle, like a like a bird candle, where the wax part is the bird. Claire um, looks on the verge of tears. Bird, um, no, rest in peace. It's not as wild as it sounds because an oil lamp is just some kind of wick suspended in an oily or fatty substance that will burn when the wick is lit. Stormy petrels, uh, the similarity to the word petroleum, by the way, is totally coincidental. Their name either comes from St. Peter or is a mangled form of an old English expression that we don't use anymore. But they were these 
still are, these fat little birds that produce oil in their digestive tracts. Uh, they eat really fatty diets, they spend most of their lives at sea, and they have to fly really long distances over the ocean for mating and nesting. So it seems like they store a bunch of oil in their stomachs as a more ready source of energy than their actual fat stores. And in this way, a starving petrel isn't so unlike a bowl of oil. It's just, <laughs> it's, its tummy is a bowl of oil. It's just a fleshy bowl of oil. Right, and, and sailors took advantage by treating them as such. And you can find some of them preserved in museums. I will have some pictures on popsi.com. It looks like a taxidermy bird with just a wick coming out of its mouth. So they snake it down. Yes, they would cover them in tar to make them stiff enough to go down. And they would just be like, down the hatch, light them up. And it would burn like any sort of primitive oil lamp. Obviously, it was around 125,000 BC that we started using fire, according to our, our best records. And then around 70,000 BC, we started carrying around rocks and shells full of like moss or uh, similar material, and they would be soaked in animal fat. Oil lamps came around in 4,500 BC. Candles were invented in 3000 BC. But from then until like the 1700s, oil lamps were truly just bowls of oil with uh, wicks in them. So again, bird, same thing. Um, and most sailors probably didn't feel too bad about it because stormy petrels' tendency to show up and freak out before storms, hence the name, made a lot of seafarers think they were like bad omens. Uh, or even brought the bad weather. Some people called them devil birds. So they were like really taking their revenge on these birds. <laughs> yeah, they were just they so were like, the birds would flock to the ship pretty frequently. They were common visitors of men at sea. So they were just like grab a few, light them up. This made me think about what life was like before we had uh, relatively convenient indoor lighting. I'm not even talking about electric lights, which obviously totally changed the way we live our lives. But uh, again, looking at the history of oil lamps and candles, we had this span of thousands of years where the technology didn't change very much. You still just had either a candle or like bowl of oil. It wasn't until the 1700s that people started like making lamps that could sit in a nice place and and have that nice little, yeah, have that little, little control mouth thing. <laughs> Kurt can see what I was doing. We're both miming. Because <laughs> for Radio Land people, we're miming that little twisting thing with your right. <laughs> well, they were probably like, who needs that when I have this bird <laughs> exactly. that I can just light on fire? Exactly. But can you make it be more or less on fire in your bidding? <laughs> so I was looking into the history of darkness and light. And so even when you get into the 1700s, 1800s, in places where candles were, were more popular than oil lamps, they were still really distinguished by class. Like only rich people had nice beeswax candles or spermaceti, which is the wax extracted from the head cavities of sperm whales. They went wild for that spermaceti. Middle class people had these like stinky, smoky animal fat candles. Uh, and the poorest people just had wooden reeds dipped in fat, which is frankly like you might as well use a bird at that point. It's it's garbage. So that got me thinking about how people lived differently when there was just a lack of reliable light, when most people just had these candles made of globs of animal fat and you weren't going to stink up and smoke up your house most of the time. And I found this one article by John Henley in The Guardian, and it noted that in Sweden, it was common practice to move all your furniture up against the walls before bed so you wouldn't knock into it while getting up to pee in the middle of the night. So they would literally just clear the floors, which is really funny to me for some reason. The most fascinating thing about this period that I found is the concept of segmented sleep. Oh, 
Claire, do you know what no, segmented sleep is? I just feel like <laughs> I've had segmented sleep lately. <laughs> I think that's all I have. Yeah. So interesting note that may be the most natural way for humans to sleep. Is this like a bunch of cat naps? Not quite. Scholars have found... Oh, wait, I think I know. But I'm going to listen to Rachel. <laughs> so uh, scholars have found hundreds of references through history uh, to first sleep and second sleep. And this is basically people would go to sleep right after eating dinner as they were losing light. They would wake up at like midnight and enjoy a couple hours of uh, being awake. And I had heard of this before, but I had always assumed that people got up and like just did work, just did tasks that they hadn't been able to complete during the day. I didn't think it was like a fun time in the middle of the night. But according to this article in The Guardian and some books on the subject by historians, people were really social. They went to visit each other at midnight and had fun times. There was one medical paper in the 16th century that actually claimed that couples were more likely to conceive if they tried between the first and second sleep. The reason was probably because a lot of these people had lives that involved a lot of manual labor. Even if you weren't uh, doing manual labor for your livelihood, everyday life involved a lot more like walking and climbing stairs and cranking things. And everything was just a little bit harder unless you were super, super rich. And so people were tired all the time, not unlike today, but they would go to sleep right after dinner. And this time between first sleep and second sleep, they would have energy, unlike when they came home from their farms, their factory jobs, whatever, and just wanted to eat and fall into bed. So this period between first and second sleep was when all the fun stuff happened, like having sex, apparently, uh, but also visiting friends and, you know, doing creative work and also finishing tasks that you had not been able to do during the day. And there's been some research suggesting that if you take away all modern day cycle cues and you just have people having a very natural dark light cycle, that they'll start to fall into this pattern of segmented sleep. They'll go to sleep earlier than they normally would, and they'll wake up and be up for a while and then go back to sleep. Some people believe that this is actually the healthy way that humans evolved to sleep and advocate for doing it in the modern world, which I was really fascinated by. When I first read it, I was like, oh my God, this is how I'm going to live my life. Yeah. It, it makes so much sense to me. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking right now. I know. <laughs> I just love the idea of being well-rested at midnight and spending two hours writing and then going back to sleep. I mean, I think I've done this accidentally yes on multiple occasions like, yes, well. i think it's maybe it's why we all get super sleepy after we eat a big meal right mm -hmm. it's like it's this is what my body wants to do and it happens we just came off of you know the end of year break where everybody's schedules were completely wonky and everybody was or at least i was letting my body do whatever the hell it wanted to do whenever it wanted to do it and that required a lot of like sleeping right after dinner and then i was awake in the middle of the night yeah, exactly. If I let myself go to bed every night when I was first tired enough to do it, I would wake up at 1 a.m. And so, yes, I was briefly very tempted to just convert my sleep cycle to this. But then I was like, what about when people want to get dinner with me at 8 p.m.? <laughs> that's wanna... my sleeping. That's my first sleeping time. <laughs> yeah, sorry. What are, what are you doing uh, between first and second sleep? That's when we can really that's party. That's I'm available. I'm also thinking more like if you want to eat, we can do it like blue plate special time, mm. like right straight from work. It's yeah. a way to save money as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, more and more as we try to figure out ways to like undo the damage of modern life and 
all of our screen time and our messed up circadian rhythm and our, our work schedules that are killing us, as we have written about several times in Popular Science Magazine. You know, I think there more and more there are people who are like, you know, to hell with social convention. I am going to have a segmented sleep schedule and you can come hang out with me at midnight if you want. And if not, good day to you, sir. <laughs> um, so I, I think we're going to see more and more of this as the information becomes more widely available and more widely shared and as people continue to do research on this stuff because we know so little about it kind of similar to like intermittent fasting uh it's becoming more and more common at least in the media world which is maybe a little isolated in this regard but it's it's becoming a lot more common in certain circles for people to be like no i can't have a social meal with you at that time because that is not a time in the day during which i eat so I feel like that's going to be happening more and more with sleep, too, as we try to fix our broken selves. One thing I don't think we'll be seeing more of is bird candles. Candles shaped like birds, though, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Any day. I'm totally finding you a candle that's shaped like this bird. <laughs> I'm going to have one made. Amazing. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back for one more fact. Hey, weirdos. Looking for awesome popular science merch? We've got you covered at popsi.threadless.com. Pick up t-shirts, notebooks, tote bags, mugs, and other great swag with iconic vintage covers or modern designs. Plus, check out our podcast store and rep your favorite Popsi shows like The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. All that and more at popsi.threadless.com. That's P-O-P-S-C-I threadless.com. And we're back, and Claire is going to tell us about what 40 barrels and 20 kegs of Coca-Cola did to the United States. Yes, so speaking of sleep and waking up at multiple times of the day, one of my goals for the week off that I took between Christmas and New Year's this year was to go cold turkey on caffeine, which I told Corinne about before so that I would have, you know, accountability, <laughs> but it didn't happen. Yeah, we, so. it didn't go so well, Claire. <laughs> That failed because my mom makes really good coffee and our house is like box-like and small and it makes the whole house smell like coffee. And I was like, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm going to drink the coffee. Anyway, so I failed to do that and restarted work last week and was like, well, I need more caffeine to energize myself. And so it was really late at night and I was hyped because of all this caffeine. And so I was researching how we came to know that caffeine is indeed an addictive substance. And I came across this lawsuit titled the United States versus 40 barrels and 20 kegs of Coca-Cola. And I was like, what does this have to do with caffeine? But I'm going to find out. It's just so bizarre that they sued the specific barrels, yeah. not the people who made them. Yes, correct. Good question. We're going to make those barrels pay. Um, Some nerve. <laughs> So it all started in 1906, and Congress at the time had just passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, which led to the creation of the Food and Drug Administration, better known as the FDA. And this prominent American chemist named Harvey Washington Wiley was quickly appointed to head the FDA. And it seems that Wiley had a little bit of a vendetta against caffeine <laughs> and simultaneously Coca-Cola. And he was like, I'm going to use this new power of mine to take down both caffeine and Coca-Cola. Part of the newly minted FDA's job was to warn and prosecute companies which were making misleading claims about their products. So if they didn't say that something had something that was detrimental to human health, then 
they were trying to crack down on these companies. Coca-Cola had long dropped its trace amounts of cocaine from its top secret formula, but it still contained caffeine, which, as we know, Wiley hated. (laughs) So his biggest concern, and for good reason, was that these products were being marketed not only to adults, but to children, um, often as young as four years old, he claimed. And we don't know enough about the potentially toxic effects of caffeine to say it's okay to market these to anybody, but particularly to children. Coca-Cola claimed that its signature drink invigorated the fatigued body and quickened the tired brain. But Wiley, on the other hand, saw caffeine as a poisonous and habit-forming drug. Both are true. Yes. (laughs) He thought the same about coffee and tea, but to him, those had natural amounts of caffeine, whereas Coca-Cola was literally adding this terrible stuff to its beverage and then selling it to kids. How terrible. So, by Wiley's doing, on October 20th, 1909, the U.S. government agents waited in Tennessee, right on the border, as a Coca-Cola truck coming from Atlanta to a bottling plant in Chattanooga was traveling, and upon arrival, they seized what was inside, which was 40 (laughs) barrels and 20 kegs of Coca-Cola syrup. I don't know if I want to make a Smokey and the Bandit joke, (laughs) or like a drug-running joke, but there's something going on in that neighborhood. So the goal was to name the food itself as the subject of the case and to keep the company only in it directly, to say, look, this food contains stuff that's terrible for you and we are marketing it to children. So they had to seize it. Once they did, there was a trial to come ahead because the U.S. government sued this product. And so Coca-Cola was preparing for their trial and their lawyers realized after doing some lit searches that the only research on the effects of caffeine were done on animals and nothing was done on humans. And so they're like, oh, So they looked around for all these scientists who would be willing to take Coca-Cola's money and look into the effects and potentially say that they're not that bad, which is, as we all know, not the greatest form of science to do. But they did find this one guy named Harry Hollingworth, who was then a Barnard instructor, not a professor, who really needed the money, as the story goes. So he completed a series of three studies in 40 days, because they were on a limited time, from a Manhattan apartment rented solely for that purpose. But as it turns out, as many scientists over the years have said, these studies were so incredibly well-designed and well-done that they're still cited today. Really? Yes. His studies showed that Coca-Cola appeared to be a mild stimulant both for motor and cognitive performance, and that he found no evidence of deleterious effects on both mental and motor performance, which is what the government had brought the company to court for. The case was first dismissed, but eventually brought back to the Supreme Court in 1916, where Coca-Cola lost, so they were forced to reduce the amount of caffeine in their beverage and pay the government the court costs as a settlement. Now, the settlement was accepted because, as it turned out, Wiley had resigned that year for other reasons, and everyone else was like, I have no vendetta against Coca-Cola or caffeine, so this sounds great to me. (laughs) So, moral of the story, that was the first big studies that they did on figuring out that in normal doses, caffeine actually does stimulate our cognitive performance and has no deleterious effects to our health. Except the shakes. Except the shakes. (laughs) Do you guys remember... In like the 90s and the 80s, there were these big pushes for super caffeinated 
sodas like mm-hmm. Jolt Cola. Right. And there was a, I think it was another Coca-Cola product called Surge. I remember, yeah, Surge. And they, they there's did, like Pepsi Max. I think Pepsi oh, Max yeah. still exists. Mm-hmm. And Mountain Dew has a has so complete, much caffeine. You right? know what else has a ton of caffeine in it? Sunkissed. Mm, I was drinking a diet Sunkissed, which I love. I when accept I, no judgment. And I always assume that like flavored sodas don't have any no. caffeine. An intern years ago was sitting next to me when I was drinking this diet Sunkist and she said, oh, are you really tired? And I said, no, I just like orange soda. What are you talking <laughs> about? And she said, there's a buttload of caffeine in that. I used to drink it instead of coffee when I needed to stay up and study. Wow. Did it say the amount of caffeine in there? Because a law that came out after all of this said that first you have to put that it contains caffeine and that it's added. And then... For some drinks, but not all drinks, you have to say how much caffeine. You know, I don't have a distinct memory of seeing it on there. It was definitely in the ingredients list when I looked and I was shocked and appalled. Mm -hmm. Wow. Another awesome food safety story. Uh, And what an intriguing lawsuit. Uh, Who do we think won this week? What was the weirdest thing we learned? Beaver butts were very strange. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say beaver butts. Well, I, I was going to vote for, for the bird candles, but I, I will accept <laughs> your nomination. Beaver butts. Beaver butts. Right. Yeah. Butt well, stuff wins again. Whiskey and Coke. Let's go have some. <laughs> the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening right now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsci.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editor, Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.